You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. The DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast. It's your host, Katie Burke, and I am here. Kind of a little bit different situation. I am not in the studio. I am here at Decoy Carver and hunting guide Grayson Chesser's uh, decoy shop right now on his property in Virginia. Uh, Thank you for having me, and welcome to the show, Grayson. You're certainly welcome. Glad to have you. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about this in... The little video we just did um, So maybe we'll Instead of repeating some of those things But let's give the audience That may not have watched that And are listening to this A little bit of background On how you got into Hunting and carving Because people care about hunting As well as carving on this show Well, you know I, I grew up in a hunting family I mean as far back As I can remember you know, and, and the stories from my family, because my family's been here ever since the 1600s. Here where I live, uh, part of the land has never been sold out of either the family since, uh, you know, it goes all the way back to land grant. 
back in the 1600s. And where I, the house I live in was where my great-grandfather lived and where my mother was born. And when we got married, we moved here. And, uh, you know, it was pretty dilapidated, you know, only three trees on the entire property outside of woods down here by the creek. And uh, you can see how many trees we've planted. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of unbelievable to think you only had three trees. That's right. That's <laughs> all it was. I, when I was a kid, I always thought, boy, I'd love to live in the middle of a refuge. And that's basically what I live in the middle of now. You know, the older you get, I think the more you, you like being surrounded by life, and um, just before you got here, I was watching two pileated woodpeckers on a tree right here in front of my shop. And, um, you know, we have all kinds of stuff here. Even, you wouldn't think so, but I've seen black rail here, which are on the endangered species list now. Seen them here twice. And, you know, we've got warm season grasses, pollinators, um, planted a lot of hardwoods, you know, with the CREP program. And um, so I, once I got, because I, I farmed for a good while, uh, maybe until 82. And, um, but over the years, tried to make it into like a hunting property because that's what I was always interested in. I'd probably been a heck of a lot better farmer if it hadn't been for hunting, but hunting was my passion, that and carving too. And the two things just went together. And that's, one of the reasons why I've been successful is, uh, you know, I think probably I'm what people think of when they think of a decoy carver because my father was a game warden. I was a game warden for a while. My family been here for hundreds and hundreds of years. And we've... This is what we've always done, you know. They they lived off the land, and a friend of mine asked me one time, uh, Bobby Richardson from Cambridge, was a decoy, well-known decoy dealer, and I've done a lot of things with Smithsonian, and he asked me, he said, Bobby talks real proper, and he said, Grayson says, I've got a question I'd like to ask you, but I don't want to offend you. I said, Bobby, you're not going to offend me. We've been friends for decades. He said, well, I'm afraid I might. I said, you're not going to offend me. He said, well, Grayson, he said, you know, I respect your carving ability, and I think you're a great carver. He said, but what I want, he said, you know as well as I do, there are a lot of other great carvers. And I said, yeah, it is. <laughs> and he said, uh, well, why does Smithsonian keep asking you to do things? I said, well, Bobby, that's easy. I said, because if you're behind times a little bit, you're just backward. But if you're behind times enough, you're a museum exhibit. And he said, <laughs> "Let me tell you, that explains it very well. I could I could never ex explain it any better than that." And let me say, they made a wonderful choice. <laughs> you know, it's true. Like we were just talking about Cameron, who you're friends with, and he gets a lot of attention because he he lives such a different life. He does, yeah, and, and Cameron um, was always that way, when, even when he was, I guess I met him, he was probably maybe 12 years old, yeah. and um, he's always been that way, Yeah, and 
Well, so, I'm guessing you were that way too, right? Did you just yeah. kind of grow and have an old soul and uh, naturally I, curious about things? Uh, yeah, I mean, really and truly, I can't really imagine people that are bored. I mean, all you got to do is go out and look around. And, I mean, the world is just absolutely full of incredibly amazing things. I mean, that's one of the things I love so much about God. And people will say, well, how in the world did you do that every day? And I mean, one year I counted up, I, I carried hunting parties like 72 days. And, you know, they'd say, how do you do that? And I'd say, the happiest, one of the happiest moments of my life is when I get aboard that boat and cut, cut the engine on. Because it's like, what am I going to see today that I've never seen before and will never see again? And, you know, I've seen amazing things and that most people have never seen. You know, Thoreau wrote about, about uh, duck hunting and talking about how the men that get up in the dark and go down through the coarse grass and, you know, and with uh, long rubber boots and long uh, fouling guns and, and all the things they see that the people who stay at home in their parlors will never see. And, yeah, I mean, he hit it exactly on the head because yeah. it's absolutely true. It is. So when did you start guiding? Well, when I was a kid, I, you know, from about the time I was about 13, 14 years old, I mean, my dream would be to be a decoy carver and a hunting guide. Well, at that time... There was no demand for decoys, none. And um, like I uh, mentioned before, you know, there were hardly any carvers from the World War II generation, but a lot from the World War II, I mean World War I, were still alive. They were like my grandfather's generation. And, you know, I just really gravitated towards those guys, and they taught me so much, not just about hunting, which they did, but but about life, and and that's I wanted to be like them, you know, and uh, you know, I mean I've been paid for having carving classes, you know, taught at community college uh, carving class for a while. I always felt guilty by taking money for it because none of those guys charged me a penny, and I always felt like if there was anything I could do to pass carving on and hunting, too. Because to me, the two things are inseparable and um, that I was going to do it. And that's what I've tried to do. And, you know, if somebody asked me what's, what I'm proudest of or the things of uh, what's come out of my shop, uh, it's some of the guys who've worked with me or that I've helped get started carving or guided with me. You know, and most of them, well, all of them have done well. You know, they may not be world-famous carvers, but they've all done well, and I couldn't be prouder of them. Yeah, so what was, who were some of those first carvers that kind of let you in and kind of gave you a, let you, let them, you had to listen to, or they listened to you? Oh, probably Miles Hancock was the biggest influence on me because... You know, he, he started market hunting way before the turn of the century. Uh, he started market hunting when he was like 
12, 13 years old. Right. Uh, was a market hunter until it was outlawed. William after it was outlawed. Right. And, um, and, and then, you know, he guided for years and was a well-known decoy carver. His decoys aren't as artistic as a lot of other people. But, you know, his decoys were incredibly serviceable. And when you put them on the water, they looked like a duck. And, you know, a lot of people, especially people who have never hunted but are interested in decoys, I think that's something they miss because it's like, how do you learn about sailboats just by looking at them if you've never used one? And, um, you know, I tell people, I said, anybody can make a good decoy. Anybody. I don't care how, you don't have to have any artistic ability to make a good decoy. But to make a great decoy, you have to have artistic ability too. And it's harder to make a good decoy and a good piece of art than it is just to make a good decoy or a good piece of art. Because with decoys, you're constrained by the fact that it has to be a decoy artistically sometimes because you can't do something, you know, like you might not want to make a super thin neck because you know it's not going to last or a super thin bill. Um, it's, it's just because decoys are like little boats, yeah. You know, they have to float right. That's that functionality. That's right. And um, Miles Hancock was great at that because um, George Riger used to be the editor of Field and Stream. Um, he did a book one time years ago called Floaters and Stickups. And he had a picture of uh, these geese in a pond and a, a, a live goose sitting with them. And it was Madison Mitchell. Uh, Lem Ward, Charlie Birch, uh, Miles Hancock, and it seemed like maybe somebody else. And all of them are considered, you know, their decoys bring more money than Miles Hancock's do. But with them sitting there with the real goose, Miles Hancock's looks more like the real goose than, than the guys who are far better known than he is. And the photographer who did the work for the book, Ken Garrett, uh, I saw the picture, and the book is in black and white, but I saw the picture in color. And in color, it's even more noticeable. And so he was a great influence on me. Uh, Lloyd Tyler up to Chris Field. Uh, he'd been a market hunter for a while and when he was young and the Ward brothers and not only them, but where I started collecting decoys when, as soon as I started carving and as soon as I started hunting, I had a lot of other influences too, like, uh, Dave Watson and especially the Cobbs because to make a good decoy, what I consider one, you know, it has to look like it's alive. Mm -hmm. A block of wood that you've carved and trying to make it into something that looks like it's alive. Well, the main way you can do that is by giving the illusion of motion. And so what I always try to do 
and it was one of the things I really loved about the the Cobbs. You know, they were they were they were all dead for years and years and years before I was born. But if you look at Nathan Cobbs decoys, so many of them have that. Even ones that are in kind of like a resting pose, they give you this illusion of life because you know. I've always felt like that that's the most important thing you can do. And, you know, whoever can do that with the least amount of paint and the least amount of strokes of the knife, he's the master. You know, when I started carving, the only decoy book or books on carving you had was Eugene Connett's uh, Duck Decoys and How to Make Them. And I was lucky enough I got one a copy of that when I at the Shelburne Museum when I was, I don't know, 13 years old maybe. And that really influenced me a, a lot. But it was, you know, I tell people I don't, I don't carve what I see in a book. I try to carve what I see in my mind's eye because, you know, when you look at a forest, you don't see the individual trees. You see the forest, and that's what I—that's what I try to do, because sometimes the sometimes the more detail you add, the human eye is not like a camera, and the human mind is not like a camera. You know, when you look at a picture or when you look at a mounted bird right there in front of you, you you see things that you don't see out in the wild. And so I tried to I try to keep it as I I try not to paint feathers. I try to paint the illusion of feathers. Mm-hmm. And I try you know, when you look at a duck, they they looked incredibly they look incredibly soft. So that's what I try to do. Uh, you know, sometimes I I think I succeed fairly well. Sometimes I fall on my face but anyway that's my goal yeah and the other thing too is i always got much more satisfaction out of making a rig of hunting decoys than an individual bird because it's just like if you look at uh painting at the last supper you know you don't pick out individual disciples you know it's the whole thing, and it's the way they interact together. And that's that's what you can do when you're making a rig of decoys. You can, you know, you can make that interaction. I always said, you know, if I was a duck flying by, would I want to join a, uh, a ducks that were all sitting there with their heads straight ahead, no matter how good they are? Or would I want to join a crowd where some of them are feeding, some of them are sleeping, some of them are swimming and I tried to make them like they're having a good time and mm-hmm. having a big party and um, it's, it's it's a whole different thing it's the difference between painting a mural and painting a vignette no it makes perfect sense well to uh, me it did I don't know what it yeah. does to everybody but that's that's what I tried to and I I think I think my decoys look better in, in a group on the water than they ever will sitting anywhere on a shelf. Okay, so when you're like planning this out, say 
you're making the patterns for a rig. Do you think about the action of each duck in that rig when you're making the pattern? Or are you doing that as you're going? Well, you know, the thing the thing with ducks is they don't have hands. They don't have all the things that we have that we use to communicate. Like, uh, you know, you're sitting there with your legs, one leg crossed. You know, you look like you're comfortable. You know, you don't see that with a, with a, with a duck. Right. With a, a duck's body is pretty much the same regardless of what they're doing mm-hmm. when, they're, when they're sitting on the water. Right, yes. All the life is in from the neck up, and, and they don't have facial expressions like we do. So all the life is basically from the where the body uh, ends and the neck starts, and then where the head starts. Of course, the head has something to do with it, too. Yeah, it's all about positioning. It, it is. And if the, you know, if, if a duck's got a real high head, he may not be scared, but he's a little nervous. He's a little alert. Mm-hmm. If he's got it pulled down, tucked down, he's, he's content, you know. If he's, if he's got a little bit of forward lean to his head, it, it, it gives the illusion that he's kind of swimming. Or if you want to go a little further and have his hips out further, you know, you give the illusion that it's feeding. Or, you know, or you could have it turned and tucked into his feathers and he'd be sleeping. Or his head on his back, but, you know, like he's preening. Uh, you know, it's, to me, you have to spend a tremendous amount of time watching birds. And that's what I always enjoy doing when I was hunting, because, you know, yourself, 99.9% of hunting is watching. And, you know, the actual shooting part is only a fraction of a second, and then it's over. And, but the rest of it is, um, is what I liked. Um, you know, Jose Cassette, the Spanish philosopher, he said that hunting was the ultimate intercourse with nature, and I think it is because, and I love bird watching, I love being out in nature, but it's not hunting. It's not even close because, like, when I'm hunting, I mean, um, it's like all your senses are kind of amplified, I think. You know, we've got a cat here. I'm not a cat person. My wife is. But I can't help but love this cat because he is such a hunter. I got uh, one of those, too. I'm not uh, a cat person either. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like strangling him sometimes <laughs> when I see him with a bird. But what can I say? I'm the same way. Mm. And, uh, you know, and you know, it's like you're so focused to me much more so than when you're just observing because when you're hunting, you're actually – it's uh, probably the most intensive nature activity I think you can do. Yeah, uh, I'm a big turkey hunter, and it's even more intense. <laughs> so I know that feeling. Okay, so I this is just something I I don't know if I've ever really thought about, but when you are talking about making the rig, and you are such an avid hunter, when you're compiling your own rig of decoys, of like something you've carved, 
What does that mix look like? Does it change depending on where you are? Like, how do you put that together uh, well, for you? If if you had enough time and could make enough, yeah, it should change because you know some places birds go to rest, some places right. they go to feed. But usually, I don't have enough time. It's a lot of work. You know, I do it for a living, so yeah. you've got to. But I try to mix it up so that they look like what I see when I watch a flock of birds. Mm. And and I try to carve the flock, not just the individual bird. Right. I mean, I make individual birds. That's yeah. um, Most people, that's what they want because they can't afford a whole rig of handmade hunting decoys. But, you know, it was really strange when the limits went down that's when I started selling more actual decoys for guys to hunt. And I, a lot of the decoys I've made, uh, probably a surprising percentage of them, guys have actually actually used. And um, But what it was, you know, you're, you're not going to kill but so many birds because they're limited, you know, three, four, whatever. And so guys would want to get more out of it and it gave them a better experience using handmade decoys than because they're a lot more trouble you know you got to be more careful with them you know you don't want to beat them up bad it's not like you can order you know another rig in three or four years from Cabela's or wherever and so you got to try to take care of them, and they're heavier. And and but I think a lot of guys get a lot of pleasure out of out of you know. It's sort of like, well, I'm only go so many times because season's short. I only shoot so many birds, so I want to get more out of the other things that go along with it. Yeah. So as a guide, did the guys going hunting with you know ahead of time that they're going to hunt over wooden decoys or were they? Well, sometimes they didn't, <laughs> you know. I mean, I use plastic decoys just like everybody mm-hmm. else, but... Because uh, I would have been very shocked by that, like, because that was something I'd never... It was not around. So. Well, some of them did because, you know, the two things really go together. I mean, they complemented each other, right. being a decoy carver and a hunting guide, and... You know, it was a lot of crossover between between the two things, people that collected decoys and people that hunted and people that hunted and people that collected decoys. And so, you know, it was, it's been a good life, I can tell you that. If I don't live to see, if I don't live to see the sunset, I don't want anybody to feel sorry for me because I've had as good a life as any man could have. Yeah. You know, my wife was very involved in it. She was... Boy, she was a wonderful salesman and, you know, because the thing is, you know, even if you're a really good carver or a really good artist, if if you can't sell your work, you know, you're dead in the water. And so you have to, you have to, you have to be a good salesman. And my wife was an excellent one. And, um, and I got better as time went on. But, you know, she's been a tremendous support to me, and she was great when we were guiding because she took care of the lodge and oversaw the lodge and all the meals, and, I mean, we ate like kings. Yeah, and they stayed right here on property. Yeah. Yeah, What was that like? Uh, I mean, we've 
I've taken, you know, well, we aren't a guiding service, but I have, we've hosted people to hunt all of my life. And, you know, in the early days, they stayed in our house for a long time until probably about 15 years ago, we finally had somewhere else for them to stay. And it was a neat, a neat way to grow up and. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, it was. Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking the other day, I've. I've guided people from every continent except Australia and Antarctica. Wow. I mean, you know, it kind of blew my mind when I really stopped and thought about it. But, um, you know, met people from all over the world. And, you know, I was very fortunate because through decoys, that's how I picked up a lot of the hunters that I went with or carried. And... And I shot with my hunters because they weren't paying me enough money not to hunt. Now, and why not get another limit while you're there? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I just I love to hunt, and they weren't paying me enough not to hunt. And the boys that guided with me, I'd say, treat these people just like they were your best friend who doesn't get much chance to hunt, and you want him to have the best experience he can have. And if that's not good enough for him. They just go somewhere else. Yeah. And, you know, I met such good people. And um, about once over five years, you'd get a jerk. And I felt like the good Lord sent them to you to make sure that you appreciated all the good people you had. And so... Uh, They're good odds, though. Oh, oh real good. <laughs> real good. But I never advertised. But, you know, I always got so much free advertising in articles and books and things that I didn't have to. And because of that, almost everybody who hunted with me, you know, sort of knew what to expect. And if it was somebody who had hunted with me before and called me, I first thing I'd tell them, I'd say, you know, there are probably more ducks that die from flying into light lines in Cameron Parish, Louisiana, than what we kill here. I said, but... You know, we've got some beautiful places to hunt. You know, we hunt the seaside over on the bar- behind the barrier islands and on the bayside and fields and ponds and open water. You know, um, I said, and so we've got pretty places to hunt. If you hunt with me three days, you're probably going to have one good day, one bad day, and one average day. And... Um, you know, and if they were still with me after that, I figured, well, it's a pretty good chance that we're going to make out good. Yeah. Well, you know, if you give good food, too, it helps. Oh, a lot. <laughs> I, I've had people who hunted with me who never fired a shot and came, uh, you know, like they were hunting one day and came back again. And, but I mean, we ate like kings. I ate so much crab. I used to tell people I thought I was going to start walking sideways. <laughs> uh, I mean, we had crab soup, I bet you, five days a week, cream of crab soup, mm. you know, clam chowder and oyster stew and, oh, uh, rockfish and flying or stuff with crab meat and, you know, single fried oysters. And and we always had somebody here to do the cooking, uh, but my wife oversaw everything, and she did a lot of it, too, and so what we tried what we try to do is make it as much like you would have experienced back in the teens or twenties if you were at a decent hunt club. 
Yeah. And it worked, worked good for us. And like I say, 99.9% of it I enjoyed. And when I got to the age where I just had to quit, my wife, her health wasn't that good. And we'd lost one of the main ladies that helped us here. She she died. And uh, uh, when we turned 70, we said, well, you know, that, that's it. We just can't do it anymore. I, I still help one of the boys that guided with me, Drew Sturgis. I help him occasionally if he if he needs somebody. Uh, the first year that he did it, it was one of the guys who hunted with me for a long time came down and he booked hunt with him. And uh, and but he he told him that he wanted me to go too. So I went and I told him I said, now Drew, I said, you know, you've worked for me. I said, and we've hunted together. I said, but this is a little different. This is a little different experience. I said, because I'm a client now, and I'll have to, I expect, you know, a certain amount of service. He said, I don't think that's going to be a problem. I said, because I have to help you on with your waiters when I was working for you. <laughs> I said, I said, I think the Bible says something about the serpent has no sting like the, like the tongue of an ungrateful child. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I <don't say> that. <laughs> um, we always like my brother and I, my dad would never let us have a dog. He would never let us have a dog because he had two. He had two children to chase ducks. And then Christopher finally got one. And I love that dog so much. We were so thankful to finally have him. He would never let us have a dog. He was like, I'm not training a dog. And yeah, it's because he made us do it every day. Well, I, you know, I mean, dogs add so much to the hunt, and I've, I've had some that were, you know, they're they're just like people. They're all different. They've all got their own personalities. But when I think about them, golly, day have I been blessed. And I mean, I've seen them do things that were absolutely unreal. Oh yeah. And uh, it, it really, ones, it really it? adds a lot to the hunt. I lost. My last one this spring, oh, and uh, I'm not going to get any more because it wouldn't be fair to uh, to the dog. I I told the vet, I said, you know, I said they should never let an old man have a young woman or a, or a, or a young dog. I said because it just does not work good. And uh, the last one I had, he didn't get to hunt as much as he should have because really, a good dog needs to be hunted almost every day. They love it. They Oh, they do. Stay tuned to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, after these messages. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. 
Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. So let's go back a little bit, and um, I kind of want to talk about your painting on your decoys a little bit. We didn't kind of go into that as much, but kind of can you walk me through a little bit of that process of the painting side of it? We talked about the carving in the other video, but I just am really interested in that part of well, your process. Of course, when I started carving, they might have had acrylics. I don't know. I've never heard of them. I don't like them, so it's, that's fine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was good friends with Cigar Days, and, he, you know, I learned a lot from him. You know, he, was, he wasn't like the World War I generation, but he wasn't quite old enough to be in World War II. But he was one of the, you know, older carvers. Of course, he was a market hunter, and... and um, my father always wanted to catch him, but he never did. He missed him just by hair one time. But uh, the first time I ever went to his shop, he uh, it was a whole bunch of shrink tickers in there. And I was about maybe 16 years old, and I walked in. Of course, he knew who I was. And it was a guy there named Boolam Clark, who was a big duck trapper. And he said, Boo Lamb said, you know this guy? He said, no, I can't say I do. He said, he looks familiar. He said, well, my God, you must be related as many times as his daddy caught you duck trapping. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Cigar loved acrylics. Oh, my golly day, he loved them. And so I, I used them for a few years, but acrylic is plastic, and it's going to look the same. 100 years from now as it does now. But oils, they age and they get a patina. And they, usually, the older they get, the better they look. Acrylic's not the same. Now, like if you're the guys who made like ultra-realistic stuff, uh, it was good for them because you you paint with washes. And it helped me. In, in the respect that I learned how to paint with washes, you know, building up color with multiple thin layers of paint. But for the most part, 
I do, you know, wet-on-wet blending, which is much easier to do with oils, uh, combing, you know, which is an old technique that a lot of furniture makers used it to simulate grain on furniture, where you put one color underneath and then take a grain and comb and go through it. And it, uh, you know, it's especially good on anything with vermiculation. And I use, I, you know, that's one of the techniques I use. And, you know, I've always liked impressionistic paintings. And so that's what I try to do when I'm painting. I don't try to paint the feathers. I try to paint the illusion of feathers, which is what you see when you see a, a, a good impressionistic painting. It's not all, you know, super, super detail, but when you look at it, it's like, oh, my God, that's just what I saw. Yeah. And, um, you know, I do dry brushing, pretty much the same techniques that have been around, oh, you know, back turn of the century even before. So I'm going to go back even farther because you mentioned, I don't know if you mentioned it in this or in the other thing we did before we were talking, but you mentioned you've always been into art. And just because I was this way as a kid too. But, like, when did that, like, how did how'd that start for you and what was it? Like, I mean, before decoys, what was that? Yeah, you know, I was, draw I, to it? I, I was a kid in class that always liked to draw. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just I just liked it. And I was, you know, fairly good at it. And when I got involved with decoys, well, all of a sudden, the two things I was most passionate about, this was before I met my wife, of course, mm-hmm. you know, just came right together. And it was like they were made for each other. Right. And, you know, when you think about it, you know, the oldest, some of the oldest human art that it is, is, you know, like the cave paintings. And, and you know, in a way that's kind of sporting art because it, you know, it's depicting all the animals that they hunted and things like that. And when you, and when you look at those cave paintings, I mean, it's just a few lines but you can see a bison or you can see a horse. I remember one time I was reading where it was, I think it was Altamara Cave. It was one, yeah, of, the, one yeah. of the big ones. And there was a, a wild cow or oxen in there. And they could never figure out what this oxen was doing because it was, in, or cow, because it was such a different shape. And one day a past herdsman walked through and said, Oh, there's a cow giving birth, <laughs> and you know, and uh, that's I was always very, very impressed with them because I think those guys and I come at it from the same place, and you know, when you look at them, I mean, those animals are moving, and it's it's really something special when you can take something that's inanimate and and make it look like. It's, really give it the illusion of life. You know, it is something like you never expect, like just to go back a little bit, you never expect sometimes the life that you end up getting, like you saying you loved hunting and carving, and I'm sure you didn't expect that would be your life at no. at a young age. And I feel that way with what I'm doing. Oh, I'm, I'm sure you do. Yeah, and it, and it's like, uh, you know, it's, and especially with like the carving, I mean, yeah, you had hunting guides when I was young, and you had carvers, but they were all old men. 
you know, they were in their 60s, 70s, maybe. And, um, you know, and there was no demand. You know, you could buy a War Brothers decoy for $5. That was like, oh, my Lord, I just spent $5 on this decoy. And, um, you know, when I graduated from high school, I think people gave me some money, and I had like $300. And there was a guy down a little bit south of here that used to buy decoys. And I went down there, and I had $300. And I bought a Nathan, uh, well, an El Kennecott redhead in original paint for $25. El Kennecott black duck in original paint for $25. And a pair of Harris Orbs Golden Eyes in original paint for $25. And one of the biggest collectors here on the shore, he tried to sell them to him, and he turned them down. They were too expensive, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I think the redhead eventually, after I got rid of it, uh, eventually sold for fifty grand. Yeah, so, you know. I asked Pete this earlier, and I want to know how you feel about it too. He's, you know, Pete gave, you know, he gives a funny like two word answer. He likes to do that. Um, <laughs> so yeah. you want him to elaborate? And he's like. Not going to happen. But, <laughs> you know, like yesterday, that Ward Pintail went for $65,000. And those guys, I'm sure never, I wonder what they would think about that Pintail going for that type well, of one. They got to see their stuff. Oh, actually, yeah. They actually got to live and see their stuff. They, but. they, they did because when I first started going around to the Ward shop, they were getting like, they made, they were making, they were older then, and they were making what they called their shooting stool, which really weren't, they were all going to collectors, but they were hollow and, um, you know, made out of cedar, and they were getting $25 a piece. And, I mean, $25 sounds like nothing, but, but, then, but yeah. that's what a man working on a farm was getting a week right? back then. And then, you know, like, they're more decked. Decorative things, they were getting, I don't know, 150, maybe 200 for. And finally, like some of the geese they made, I think they got like a thousand for. But yeah, it was a different time. Yeah. Does it feel odd to see, to think that your stuff is going to appreciate what in as it goes? Well, does it feel like, can you, can you you grasp that? yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I think it will. You know, I've always said that you're the worst judge of your own stuff. Right. Because you're too closely involved with it. And I know I've made things. I've got a cart black duck, I mean, mallard here that I made, I think, in 70, 71, 72. And when I made that, I said, oh, my God, I've arrived. (laughs) I I had about 18 of them, and I thought that one was the best one of the bunch. And I loved that thing for years. And then I looked at it one day, and the eyes were at least a half inch too low. <laughs> it bothered me so bad, I had to pop them out and, and put them where they should have been. <laughs> and, you know, and Bill per- Bill Purnell up at Ocean City is a very good critic and very knowledgeable on decoys. And I'd made a pindale one time, and I thought she really looked good, a pindale. And he walked in the door shop, and he said, Good God, that the bill on that duck droops worse than I won't say what he said it drooped <laughs> worse than. But, and I looked at it, I thought, I can't see it. But I, I knew, Bill knew 
what he was talking about by decoys. And after about four or five days of looking at that duck, I said, you know, he's right, which is really scary because when you make something and you think it's good, you think, is this as good as I think it is or <laughs> or is it a piece of junk? Yeah, what, how, what else have I done this way? <laughs> That's right. And uh, the Refuge Waterfowl Museum over Shinkton, the guy I used to buy a lot of stuff from me, my daughter and I, she was about 16, I guess. And uh, we went in there one day, and she was. we were looking at stuff, and she looked around, and finally she said, Daddy, you know, you're lucky to sell some of this. <laughs> I said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kids are the worst in that way. <laughs> they really point out well, your flaws. <laughs> it's, you know, you, you evolve over time, and, and most decoy carvers, almost everyone I've ever seen, they start out, and they get better, and they get better, and better, and better. And the lucky ones reach a peak and maintain it. But most, when they get older, they start to decline, which I'm 76, so I hope I can maintain. But <laughs> who knows? I mean, you... Your hands aren't as steady, your eyes aren't as good, and uh, yeah. So you're just hoping for muscle memory right now, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the muscles shake. Now. <laughs> At your peak, how many decoys were you producing? And then, how? What about like now that you're, you know, it's not nearly as. Uh, well, I made a lot of different things. I made a lot of silhouettes. I made some silhouette shorebirds for a while, and one year I think I counted up. I made over 300 and that was about it was either right after i quit farming or just before and but now i probably i might make 50 a year something like that that's still a lot yeah i mean um you know i get old i'm older i don't have the energy i had my wife could always work circles around me and my nickname in high school was Lightning. It wasn't because I was fast. It was because those other little suckers were meaner than snakes. <laughs> and uh, it, you just don't have the energy that you had. And and I have my wife. My wife took care of everything except carving and hunting. And I was blessed to have have a wife that was willing to do that. And um, but now she can't do. You know, like the yard, all that, all the stuff around here. You know, you accumulate all this stuff when you're young. Uh, you know, there's an old building, like uh, you know, the building over here. That was the one room schoolhouse that was here back in the 1800s, and my grandmother taught school there in 1916. And uh, the building over here was first; it was a beer joint here at Jenkins Bridge, and then it was the post office. And, you know, you move these buildings up here, and you think you've got a use for them. Well, you do, but then once you slow down, you don't, but you still got to maintain them. And my wife took care of all that. I went to the Chicago show one time and came back, and she'd hired two guys to help her, and she'd painted the entire house. <laughs> and that's just the way she was. It, she thought there was nothing she couldn't do, and most of the time she was absolutely right. But uh, I have to do more things that she used to do now, you know. 
but I, I got no complaints. All right. I have one thing I didn't ask you about, but and I want to make sure we talk about is we talked about your like mentors and stuff, and you even talked about, you know, spreading that to the younger generation. But what has it meant the community of carvers that are that you've that you've grown up with and you're still carving with and how has that community shaped your life as a carver and a hunter? Oh, it's it's wonderful. I mean, most carvers are they're kind of similar a little bit. Now, the guys who do the ultra decorative decoys, a lot of a lot of them are different. They're much more detail oriented people. And um, like when I first started doing shows for to sell my stuff, you know, they'd come by your table and and they'd look, yeah, that's nice, but you can see what they were thinking. Doesn't he want to make something better? Which to them meant more detailed yeah. and um, more lifelike, uh, <laughs> or like more well, per- like uh, I almost think they're too perfect. Well, they they <laughs> they are to me yeah. because. Um, like I told you, your eye gets hung up on the detail and you don't see the whole bird. Right. And, um, you know, but I, I'm i so glad I didn't go down that path because, you know, most super realistic decorative carvings don't age well. You know, just they they don't uh, wear decoys. Even, even the ones you use, I mean, a lot of people... You know, a lot of people who collect decoys now, like I said, are people who've never really hunted. You got an awful lot of them, and they they have more of a problem, I think, with why is this one worth three hundred and this one worth three thousand, or this one worth three thousand and that one's worth thirty. Uh, well, you know, art is subjective. Oh, hundred percent. You you can't. I, I never liked art contests, really. I never liked decoy contests because it's so subjective. I've I've judged a lot of them. And if I can tell you, the first third you could throw right out. Second third takes a lot longer. The last third, it probably depends on whether you had bacon or sausage for breakfast, what you pick. Uh, because then you they're all so close together, it's hard. So you start looking for little nitpicky things, well, well, we can throw that one out because of this little thing or that little thing. And the other thing with, especially with like uh, the, the decorative birds, you know, the ultimate goal is to make an exact copy of, of the uh, real bird. Yeah. Well, the close, better everybody gets the closer everybody gets to the same point and the more everybody's stuff looks alike. So there's less individuality, I think. Mm, less personality. And and personality. And um, to me, I like looking at a decoy and you can say, oh, Nathan Cobb made that. Dave Watson made this. R. Hudson made this. Uh, you know, Madison Mitchell made this. You know, but... When when you're all converging on the same point, the more everybody looks like everybody else. Yeah. And I think it's self-defeating myself. Right. And yeah. Because you're never going to make it like the exactly like the real bird. Yeah. No. 
Um, yeah, that's a good point. And, and it's so, and the other thing that you would lose, like you, you do lose in that is that's really, I've always found really interesting is the region, the, how the area influences the carver too. And not just in what was being carved around him, but where he's hunting as well. Like, a- Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I've always told people there's no such thing as a perfect decoy because if you, if you make it perfect for one condition, it may not be worth 10 cents. And, and you know, if you make something on a small pond that's, you know, protected and all, and you've got to walk a long ways, well, you want something just as light as you can and, you know, self-writing is not as big a deal by any means because you're probably putting a mic behind. And if you're hunting in open water, you know, you got to have something that self-writes because you're, you're, you know, you're putting them out in a group, you know, maybe on long lines. And and it's just, that's that's one of the things about handmade decoys. You can tailor them to wherever the guy hunts and, and you know, his, his hunting conditions. And uh, that was one of the things I always liked about decoys is, you know, uh they're they're all so different. I, yeah, I do. I like that, and I like, like you know, I can. I mean, not that one, of course, but you can walk up and you can you can tell who's is who's for the most part. Like they yeah, have such without yeah. turning them over. You have your. You you can and I think Pete called it your your signature is like there. Oh yeah, you know <laughs> everybody wants you to sign the bottom of the bird. Well, you know if they want me to, that's fine. I always carve a C on the bottom of mine. But, um, you know, if they want me to write it out and the date and everything, that's that's fine. I don't mind doing it. But, you know, this real signature is in in the carving and in the painting and in the design. And, uh, I mean, it's just like with paintings. I mean, it doesn't have to have the signature. The signature is in the paint and, and the way it's applied and the techniques that the man used and all that. And so, I you know I've never lost my fascination with decoys. Never lost my fascination with hunting, and uh, I certainly hope I never do. That's a good spot. All right, is there anything you want to say to our audience before we go? Well, I don't know what I would say exactly. Um, just keep trying, do the best you can. You know, we don't live in a vacuum. You know, when I started carving, people didn't care if you copied somebody else's work it, because it was no monetary value involved in it. You know, a decoy was a decoy. It was a decoy. And, but now people get real upset. Oh, he's copying my work. You know, I mean, I used to be able to go like Chicago and other shows and walk down the aisle and I could tell some this guy he, he used a book that we did on decoy carving because I could see the things he did, you know. And uh, that never bothered me because I figured if a guy can take what he learned from me or from looking at my decoys, and if he doesn't do it as well as I did, he gets the blame. If he does it better, I get the credit. And, and you know, we don't live in a vacuum. And it's not like all of a sudden you're plopped down here on earth 
and you don't have no influences. You have to have those influences. You have to, you have to have, you build on what other people have done. And you, I mean, the way I did it was, thank the Lord, the people I carved, uh, copied, most of them were dead. <laughs> they didn't care. You know, I, it's true. And I think about this a lot. And I, I don't, I maybe have talked about someone else, but you know, they always like it being original art. And like, there's no such thing as original art. Not really. It, everybody has learned from somebody and has right. done something and moved that forward. So, yes, and, you're right. And most of the people that, that I've taught, you know, you, I tell people, I can't teach anybody to carve. I can teach them techniques that they can use. I can uh, show them steps and things like that, but they have to do it themselves. And I can show them how I do it. And and that's all you're doing is learning the techniques and the basics. And the ones who will really be good, they'll, they'll incorporate other influences or things that they like. Uh, things that appeal to them, that, which may not mean as much to me, but they make it their own thing. Um, the ones who don't have enough talent to do that can still make a good decoy that they can use and get a lot of pleasure out of. Yeah, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be something that's going to sell for fifty thousand dollars. You know, forty years down the road. Could be just something that course, makes a duck come in. Fifty thousand dollars forty years down the road might not be worth over twenty five. <laughs> might not now. be worth anything. <laughs> but at any rate, you know, that's, that's they, they've got to develop themselves, and if they have it in them, uh, they can do it. If they don't, they can still get pleasure out of carving and using them. And yes. It's a lot of pleasure. Well, thank you, Grayson, for You're doing this welcome. with me. This is really fun. I really enjoyed it. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Grayson, for coming on the show. Thank you to our producer, Chris Isaac, and thanks to you, our listeners, for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to the DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit ducks.org slash DU podcast. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. 
Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation, united by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside. 